Hey, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday the 15th of September. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. And Annika, 13-year-old you is very excited about today's briefing topic. Yes, 13-year-old me was at the Olympics. I just turned 13. It was not only the Olympics, it was my birthday. I was there in green and gold. Bring back the 2000 Olympics, I say. (laughs) All right, we're going to speak to the flag bearer who walked in leading our athletes to the opening ceremony. It has this incredible bonding uh, experience, not just for the athletes, but for the world. Andrew Gaze in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. The government says gas is the answer to bring down our power bills. Today, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's expected to unveil plans for a gas-led coronavirus recovery, backing five new gas fields to keep prices competitive. The Morrison government is also set to back a gas-fired power station in the New South Wales Hunter Valley if AGL doesn't replace its Liddell coal-fired station, which is slated to shut down in two years. Yeah, the federal government's concerned the state of New South Wales will see a price spike if the station isn't replaced. Uh, which is what happened to Victoria after its Hazelwood station was turned off. Um, This is an interesting one, Annika. It materialises a concern I've heard from environmentalists that uh, the economic recovery coming out of the coronavirus will be used as a reason to put economic concerns above environmental concerns. Um, Environmentalists would clearly like to see more renewable energy rather than gas as part of the solution. But obviously the government will argue that gas has lower emissions than coal, and that we are the world's biggest exporter of natural gas, so why not use some of it to power our country and particularly our manufacturing sector? Yeah, look, gas is still a fossil fuel, uh, but it is considered a transition fuel, something you can do on the way to a more renewable future. It's been spoken about for about 10 years in Canberra, and I think the problem is we were in a very different place 10 years ago. It's not like emissions have dropped dramatically in those sort of 10 years. So the reason the government are getting behind it is because industry basically needs to be able to extract it and sell it at a rate that justifies new investment. So that's where taxpayers come in. Uh, This isn't a huge surprise the government is leaning this way, uh, but a big announcement nonetheless today. Do you think Labor will push back on it? Uh, Look, Labor are looking for some answers too. They've hinted they're going to step away from their ambitious uh, targets to reduce carbon emissions by 45%. I don't think they'll drop as low as the coalitions, which are about 25 or 26, but maybe somewhere in between. So I wouldn't be surprised if gas was part of the mix for their uh, future too. And South Australia's decision on when to reopen their border with New South Wales and the ACT could be made as early as today. I've been hanging out for this, Tom. Premier Stephen Marshall says the state's transition committee is meeting later on. If they give us the advice, we'll be very quick to open that border. But we've always said we don't want to do it before it's safe uh, to do so. You got your eyes on a trip to the Barossa Valley or something? Glenelg Beach, bring it. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As the rules could be easing off in South Australia, one rule is tightening in New South Wales. From today, anyone caught at a private event with more than 20 people could be fined $1,000. This is an amendment to the previous rule where only the organiser could be fined. Health officials are worried there'll be more bad behaviour as the weather warms up. Basically what they're saying is no partying in New South Wales this summer. Annika Smethurst, keep your raging parties on your side of the border. (laughs) Canberra's totally different. We haven't had a case in two months, Tom. You. Queensland's Chief Health Officer Jeanette Young admits it's been a pretty tough few days after death threats saw her given police protection. Yeah, you might remember Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier, last week telling us that it was the Chief Health Officer 
not her who ultimately was responsible for decisions like refusing the woman's request to leave hotel quarantine for her dad's funeral. Let me make it very clear. I don't make those decisions. It's actually her decision. On the weekend, Dr Jeanette Young was targeted by online trolls who threatened her life. But she says the pandemic has been hard on everyone. It has taken enormous toll on me, but this has taken enormous toll on nearly every single person in our community. Hearing that story, it sounds a bit like the Premier threw the Chief Health Officer under the bus. Yeah, I did think that at the time, that it was a strange thing for Anastasia Palaszczuk to say, but she's got an election coming up. It does strange things to people. Yeah, and she was under a lot of pressure from the Prime Minister as well. The daughter of the man whose funeral became the focal point, we mentioned that earlier, the the sort of focal point of the Queensland border debate last week, um, she's spoken out to the ABC. It was her stepsister who was stuck in quarantine and couldn't get to the funeral. So the sister who was at the funeral has said that it was shocking to see a media scrum outside the funeral and she's criticised the Prime Minister for politicising her father's funeral. It's quite clear that this was... Um orchestrated in order to maximise media coverage and um, I guess provide Scott Morrison with a a campaign against the the Queensland Premier. Pretty difficult to hear there. I was at a Zoom funeral yesterday and they're tough enough as it is without that sort of attention. I guess that's the only way to get focus on some of these things now. Her sister was able to go in for a private viewing and sometimes the media attention does actually bring change but it does come with a downside. Yeah, and it also takes the whole personal moment outside your control, which I imagine will be quite hard to deal with. And a video's gone viral of a man being knocked over by a Victorian police car and then kicked in the head as he's wrestled to the ground by a group of officers. What the f***? That is f***. Yeah, the man is now in an induced coma. Look, according to police, they say he was behaving erratically, became aggressive and damaged a police vehicle whilst attempting to avoid arrest. But the man's father, Glenn, has told Nine his son tried to admit himself to a psychiatric ward the day before the incident. I spoke to him Saturday, he was crying, he wanted me to come in. I can't. It was the COVID thing. And, you know, you hear your son crying on the phone. It's not very nice. And then you see what the police did to him. It's some incredibly confronting footage. Look, the Professional Standards Unit is investigating, but so far no officers have been stood down. President Donald Trump has been accused of negligent homicide after thousands of supporters packed into an indoor rally in Nevada. Negligent homicide? What else could you call an act that because of its negligence results in the deaths of others. That was Dr Jeremy Rayner speaking on CNN. It's worth noting that it is actually illegal to gather in groups of over 50 indoors at the moment. Uh, Footage at the event shows little social distancing and very few masks. If you have a mass gathering now in the United States with hundreds or thousands of people, people will get infected and some of those people will die. On Twitter, Nevada's governor described it as reckless and shameful. Nearly 200,000 Americans have died from the virus and 6 million people have been infected. Well, hopefully that rally won't cause any more deaths. Uh, Let's um, change the mood a little bit and talk about one of the best moments in Australian history. Will anything ever be as good as the Sydney 2000 Olympics? On this day 20 years ago, the whole world was watching Sydney 
for the Olympic opening ceremony. With over 100,000 people packed into Homebush Stadium and 2 billion people watching on TV, Kathy Freeman leaned down and lit the Olympic flame. I declare open the Games of Sydney. On the briefing, we're going to relive the glory and ask how we get back to our sporting best. Sydney was our biggest ever medal haul and then Rio, the most recent Olympics, was our worst in over 20 years. Now, I remember that day of the opening ceremony very clearly. I watched the torch relay come through the northern beaches. First, I saw it at Narrabeen, and then I followed it down to Manly, um, where it got carried onto the ferry. What about you, Annika? Where were you at that time? Yeah, the following day was the 16th of September, and I remember that because it was my 13th birthday. I was lucky enough to actually be in the arena where the Aussie men team, 4 by 100 relay team, beat the Americans and, and they'd said they were going to smash them like guitars. There's this infamous sort of picture where they're, they're all at the end of the pool, Ian Thorpe, Michael Klim, playing guitars. It was an incredible moment. Thorpe's in front, Thorpe on hall, Thorpe goes in. Australia win. New world record. Oh, yeah, that was huge. And then the other big moment, of course, was Kathy Freeman's um, massive win in the 400-metre final. Um, in that iconic green bodysuit, and then she draped herself in the Australian and the Aboriginal flag. Freeman's got work to do here. There's about 150 to go. Guevara and Mary are right up. It's going to be a big finish. Into the slate, Graham leads. Freeman runs up to her. Mary inside. Kathy lifting. Goes up to Graham. Takes the lead. Looks a winner. Draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory. A magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. So many of us remember where we were when she ran that amazing race. Look, someone else who was right amongst the game's action was five-time Olympic basketballer Andrew Gaze. Yeah, when Kathy Freeman was lighting the torch in the opening ceremony, uh, he was our flag bearer leading the Olympic team into the stadium. It was such a um, a remarkable occasion for me and, and, and really for the nation as well, the way in which we can um, demonstrate all the the great things that uh, this nation can do, I think, was encapsulated in in the way in which we conducted the entire uh, Olympics. But uh, stepping foot out in front of 120,000 people, waving the Australian flag and introducing some of the greatest athletes this country can produce to the rest of the world is a is an incredible honour. And to have the the privilege to do that on on home soil made it an even greater moment in my career. That's Andrew Gaze remembering the 2000 Olympic opening ceremony. We'll come back to him a little later for more of his thoughts. Another epic moment that I really remember was played out on the sands of Bondi Beach. It was the moment our volleyballers, Kerry Podhurst and Natalie Cook, came from behind not once but twice to claim the gold medal against Brazil. Kerry joins us on the briefing. Kerry, listening to that amazing moment, it's just incredible. What was it like to step onto that sand at Bondi Beach? It was pretty scary at first because we'd never played in front of 10,000 screaming fans that were cheering for us. We'd normally were playing in front of fans that were cheering for our opposition. So it was quite intimidating. It's quite scary. 
Um, it was a real kind of really close little cauldron, a lot of energy in there and a lot of loud music and everything. We were kind of used to the music but not to the people. So it took a little time to get used to it, but eventually by the time we got through to the gold medal match, we were so pumped. We were ready and nothing was going to stop us. I remember it as, as such a, a moment that Australians really got behind Obviously, you felt it there, but did you feel the whole weight of the nation being behind you at that moment? What we'd learnt leading up to the Olympics was it's really about your mindset. It's really about how you deal with things that are happening to you in life. That's how you get through things. That's how you succeed. So we felt like the nation was helping push us up onto the podium. We felt like it was a support energy rather than any sort of pressure. So, you know, at first that that scariness of having them all there for us was turned into a positive in our own minds. And it and that's how, you know, life works. You've got to turn things around and, and make them, you know, go in, in your favour, I guess. Now, looking back, Tom, it's hard not to wonder whether we'll ever get back to those glory days as a nation. Sydney was our best ever Olympic hall. We came fourth with 58 medals. 16 years later at Rio, we placed 10th and brought home 29 medals, the lowest figure since 1992. Yeah, and a few days ago, Ian Thorpe came out and urged the federal government to put more money into elite sport before the Tokyo Games. He says that if we want another golden age, we basically just need more money. We asked Kerry what she thinks about that. She says that certainly been the case, at least for beach volleyball. Leading into Sydney 2000, a lot of money was injected into the sports because obviously we wanted our, you know, we wanted to get as many medals as we could. So, you know, I don't know dollar-wise where we're at, whether we're putting the same amount of money in. Probably not. Our sport doesn't get as much money. Every year we're looking at getting, you know, money cut. So, yeah, I think the the funding model around sport has to change for us to to really you know, give our athletes that advantage to maybe, you know, better their results. Do you think getting another Olympics back to Australia would not only, I guess, get more funds for the sport, but get Australians excited about some of those more niche sports that you were saying we generally don't get around between Olympics? Absolutely. I mean, it would be so incredible. And I think Brisbane is definitely, you know, for 2032 is definitely on target. And the great thing is that my beach volleyball partner from Sydney 2000, Natalie Cook, is actually working with um, the Queensland government on, you know, helping, you know, it's her dream to have the 2032 Olympics um, in Brisbane. So, you know, for her to be involved in it so closely at this point and, and hopefully get it over the line and then, you know, to be able to sit there and go, wow, it's the third Olympics in Australia in in the history of the Olympics. It would be incredible. Wow, pretty exciting to think about the potential of Brisbane 2032. But you've got to wonder, do we really need to host the Games again to get back to our sporting best? We put that question to Andrew Gaze. It's, it's no, I think, coincidence that if you go back in history and look at the performance of the host nation, it's usually a time when they did their best ever performance at the Olympics and certainly has been for us, the amount of medals we won. That combined with the the attention and focus that we had here in Australia on the Olympics enabled us to to, to be introduced to, to some incredible Australian performers. I think the world right now uh, needs an, another Olympics. Uh, usually for those two and a half weeks, we come together and we enjoy – uh, performances uh, of our own nations, but performances from 
right throughout the world, and we marvel at the incredible athleticism of and, and humanity. I guess an example of that, if you think back to the Sydney Olympic Games, let's have North and South Korea uh, march out together in the opening ceremony as one. And most people would say, turn it up. They're, you know, they, these guys are incredible enemies. Well, that's what they did in the Sydney 2000 Olympics. It has this incredible bonding uh, experience, not just for the athletes, but for the world. And we look together and, and, and we find the common experiences and, and, and what brings us together is sort of enhanced because of the Olympics. And I'm sure next year in, in Tokyo, I'm sure that that will do the same. That was basketball legend and five-time Olympian Andrew Gaze. Annika, as much as I'd love to have the Olympics again, you'd hope that it wouldn't take that to get back to our sporting best. No, look, it really was a magical time. As I sort of hinted at there, we knew the names of our archers and our volleyballers and these sort of unique sports that don't get a lot of coverage between the Olympics. And it'd be great to actually get behind some of those Aussies, not just when the Olympics comes to town. Yeah, and uh, this is such a, a weird Olympic year. We'd still be in the post-Olympic glory haze of Tokyo if it had happened, but now we're waiting a year. So it's going to be one of the most anticipated Olympic Games ever. Yeah, I think Andrew Gaze was right, though. It's what the world needs right now. Just that unifying spirit that comes from an Olympic Games and also giving us a much-needed distraction. Well, that was a very fun walk down memory lane. That is it for the briefing today. Look forward to speaking to you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.